Hello, and welcome to a special edition of Talon Talk. We are here with Dr. Cascadden um, in a circle of faculty and students to discuss um, the question of ethics in education. Um, this uh, special edition of Talon Talk is a part of the Ethics Circle program here at Bow High School. Um, and so Dr. Cascadden has been generous enough to give us his time and tell us a bit about his perspective in his time in education um, and how he sees ethics uh, interacting with education. And especially as we look to the future, what are the big ethical concerns in education in the 21st century? That's sort of where we're trying to go today. So. Welcome, Dr. Cascadden. Let me uh, start by just asking you a couple of questions about uh, your career. You're obviously our outgoing superintendent here in SAU 67. Um, can you tell us, um, maybe in a nutshell, sort of how long you've been in education, some of the different roles you've played uh, throughout your career? Yeah, I've been in education since I graduated from college in 1983. Uh, I was principal of a small Christian school. I spent four years getting an advanced degree. I've been a uh, middle school principal in Bristol, New Hampshire. I'm superintendent of schools now. I had a short stint up in Whitefield before I came here. And I've been here 16 years and I've also been involved in a lot of state initiatives during that time. I wonder when you first made that leap into education, um, was there a particular motivation or reason you wanted to become an educator? Um, I think my whole life I've always liked to take complex things and make them understandable without um, making them not true. Um, you know, sometimes when you try to simplify something, it loses its complexity and it's very difficult to still be with the truth, but you have to try to make it understandable. Mm. Very interesting. And do you, how does that play out on the superintendent level for this final, um, or maybe not final chapter in your educational <laughs> career, but one of uh, this chapter that we all know you from? There are very complex issues that we deal with that you oftentimes have to distill into a soundbite mm. so that it can get out there and your perspective can be seen. Very few people will take the time to actually read a full email, mm. and so you need to get your point across in a couple sentences or at max a paragraph. Mm. So our topic today is about ethics. Um, how do you view on a on a ten thousand foot level, kind of the the role of ethics in education, and where does your mind begin when you think about that topic? Well, the first thing I go to is New Hampshire's adopted a code of ethics for educators, and the way that came about was they were looking at a particular certification. I think it was speech, and it said, "Well, speech people will subscribe to a code of ethics." And they asked, "Well, where is this code of ethics?" And there wasn't one, and they ended up developing a code of ethics. I was actually on the panel that that helped develop the code of ethics for educators. And when they developed that, they distinguished between two things, a code of conduct and a code of ethics. A code of conduct is very specific actions, and if you violate those actions, you may have your license revoked or suspended. And that's in, uh, in educational rules. There's a whole department over at the DOE called Educator Misconduct, has a former police officer and a lawyer, and you don't want to get 
get a call from those people because it usually means you have done something wrong. Ethics, on the other hand, are aspirational statements. They're statements about how we should do business and how we should treat other people. And they developed, um, it's about a five statement, of course, with a number of, uh, of, of sub points under them about what there should be ethics in education in New Hampshire. I wonder, are there, and I know I'm putting you on the spot here, are there some of those, what are some of those aspirational statements that are so, in that code? So one of the first ones that goes is the educator needs to have a commitment to the student. Mm. That number one, the first thing the educator does is look at the student and see what the student needs are and has a commitment to that student. Mm. And one of the first subpoints under that commitment is the educator will not allow discrimination to happen. Mm. which is which is interesting it's like very first we talk about the educator will not allow discrimination to happen either in their classroom or will speak up when that happens mm. very interesting um so l l let me go on a little bit yeah, one absolutely. of the difficult things about being an educator is you are directive to students hopefully to the point where the students find their own way. Mm. And it's always an interesting kind of conundrum. How much direction should you give a student um, and so that they can find their own way and find their own person? Right now, we have the culture wars going on in the United States, and there is a lot of people who talk about that public schools have a woke agenda. Mm. They are pushing students to accept um, tenants of LGBTQT, there's critical theory, uh, there's divisive concepts or so forth. And there seems to be an argument about what should public schools teach? What history should we teach? Should we teach it from the white male winner perspective or should we look at other perspectives of people who weren't so successful uh, or, or traditionally marginalized groups? Mm. And I think if you look at non-discrimination, the public schools belong to everybody. And we have to somehow find a way where we don't discriminate against anyone in the public school while at the same time having high-level conversations about what we should know, what we should teach about, and really what society would be like. Mm -hmm. And so if you practice the concept of non-discrimination, everyone has a right at the table, mm -hmm. everyone has a right to speak, mm -hmm. and then how do you develop that over time? Like I said before, you have to start simply. I mean, you just can't come into kindergarten and say, who do you want to be? You have to have that person develop a little further. But by the time you get up to high school, mm -hmm. really you should allow people to be who they identify as or who they want to be and allow freedom of expression of all those things. Mm. I appreciate you saying that, Dr. C. I think it's for those of us who care a lot about education, I think have observed that culture war that you're talking about and it can be um, I don't know, frankly difficult to know how to think about it and what to do about it. Um, I wonder, going back to your journey as an educator, have there been moments, maybe big, maybe small, where, where you have wrestled with ethical questions? Oh, I, I started in Christian schools. I started as a principal of a Christian school where we had 
a definite philosophy that we were teaching. We had a definite worldview that we were teaching everyone. And we believed that children belonged to their parents and that our job was to inculcate the parental values into those into those students. I didn't come to public school until uh, later in my career. And the concept that we were going to instill the parental values, well, whose parental values are you going to instill? And then the answer is all of them. And, you know, the real beauty that I think of public school is it's the one place in society where we insist everyone comes to the table, they treat each other with respect and tolerance, and they listen to other viewpoints and learn how to live with each other, respecting, and that goes back to the non-discrimination, respecting everyone for who they identify as or, or who they say they are and the beliefs that they hold in a non-judgmental way. I mean, challenging. There are, you know, ethical things always lead to debates, mm-hmm. but uh, and a way of tolerance and respect that I don't think we really enforce in any other place in our society right now. Mm, very true. Well, I want to open up this discussion to some of the other people around the table uh, so they can maybe offer some questions to you, um, maybe some comments. Uh, I think we already have a lot of interesting stuff on the table. And I appreciate you saying all you have already. Um, so maybe we can start uh, with Eve over here. So Eve, do you want to introduce yourself? And then maybe if you want to give a comment or ask a question uh, to Dr. C. Um, hi, I'm Eve, and uh, I have a question for you, Dr. C. Uh, my question for you is, if you could go back to um, the Christian school, would you go back to it? Um, no, I, uh, I don't go to church anymore. I, I love Jesus. I uh, believe in all of his teachings. Uh, I have come to believe that love is love. And where you find love, you should look for God. And unfortunately... A lot of churches have a political agenda right now, and I've seen a lot of churches that are are run by people, and they're promoting um, a, maybe a political agenda or a philosophical agenda that I don't think is true. So I wouldn't go back to the Christian school. In fact, I believe the public school, with their philosophy of accepting all and having all come into the fold, uh, is truer to the Bible that I know than maybe some of the Christian schools I was in. Hmm. Thanks, Eve. Let's keep going around the table here. We've got uh, next Mr. Sheehy. Uh, hi, I'm Mr. Sheehy. Um, I guess I have, uh, just based on all the stuff you were talking about, I have like a few thoughts. Um, would you say that the non-discrimination in the Code of Ethics is, is designed to focus maybe more on student ability or student needs than maybe like the greater cultural questions of discrimination. Like when we're talking about discrimination in a classroom, are we more saying like maybe this kid has a some kind of learning disability that I should be addressing uh, versus another kid does not and so I can't basically ignore that because that is because like in my mind when I read the code of ethics that's how I interpreted the discriminate like that's how I interpret it was to be like I need to be like addressing all the students needs it's not being like I shouldn't like discriminate against my students based on race obviously I shouldn't but I took it to mean more like because if you do we're calling educator misconduct yep, you? yep I, feel like that, I might fall in the conduct category so um I guess what do you think 
discrimination in the classroom or or avoiding or not having discrimination in the classroom? What does that really look like? Well, there are two concepts when you talk about discrimination. One is equity and one is equality. Equality is giving everyone the same. And equity is giving what people need or perhaps what they deserve because they've been part of a traditionally discriminated against group. And I think uh, in education, we're called for equity. We're called to give people what they need to give them equal opportunity. We can't guarantee equal outcomes, but equal opportunities sometimes means we need to make accommodations. That's what the 504 law is about. That's what a lot of special ed is about. It's interesting, in the last go-round where they have been looking at certifications, uh, the state school board has stripped the concept of equity from any of the leader competencies. Mm. That was always a competency for leaders, that they were committed to equity. And those have been stripped out of there because they said, well, there's not a good definition. And I think that's part of the culture war. Part of the culture war is we want to treat people equally. Uh, you know, racism ended in 1962. Dr. Martin Luther King took care of that. So if we just treat all people equally now, it's done. And it's like, no, we still have some equity issues. We have some issues of glass ceilings. We have some issues of groups that have been traditionally discriminated against that we still have to uh, account for. We have to do things to make sure that they have equal opportunity for educational um, outcomes. Hmm. All right. Yes. That's, I guess, sort of what I was thinking. Hmm. Um, I also had another thought when you were talking about maybe like how we, the public schools is a place for everyone to have their voice and for you know everyone to be heard in like a respectful way. But I do sort of wonder like, is there a line somewhere? Like what if a student wanted to like, you know, come to school wearing like a big swastika on, a, on their t-shirt? Um, and they were trying to say like, that's an expression of them. Mm-hmm. We, but mm-hmm. also we know that is like a, a universal expression of hate towards like many groups. So how would you balance something like that? And that's where where the difficulty comes in. And your right to extend your fist ends at the tip of my nose. Mm-hmm. And and you know, right now, libertarians, free staters, you know, you look at the little flags, don't tread on me and so forth. Um, it's all about their rights. But liberty, when you look at liberty, it's the freedom that everyone gets the freedom to to express. And there's a part of self-control. What you would do if a child brought a swastika in or brought a a child, if a student brought a a swastika in or a Confederate flag, is you sit down and you talk about the symbol and you talk about what that does. And the Tinker case, uh, which was the famous case of freedom expression in schools, was about students who wore black armbands during the Vietnam War to protest the war. And it was found, yes, you can wear the black armbands as long as they are not disruptive. So that Nazi symbol or the Confederate flag symbol becomes disruptive because it's such a symbol of hate for groups. So if we had a significant Jewish population here or if we had a significant African-American population here, a swastika or a Confederate flag would cause a disruption because those people would respond to it. Mm. And so as the public school, we have the task of keeping those disruptions from happening, of of enforcing civil debate. Mm. But the debate would become, why is the swastika disruptive? And why does it cause an issue? Mm. Okay. All right. Mm. Thank you. 
All right, next up we got Mr. Cannon. Uh, we're not giving you the, the softball questions here, Dr. C. I appreciate your answering these. Um, Mr. Cannon, take it away. Sure. Uh, thanks, everybody. Um, I was just thinking a little bit about trying to put the ethics and the, and the code of ethics in the context of not just our current society, but sort of societies in an immutable, like, all-time sort of way. So. I don't know if this is really a question. It's more of a, I don't know, just an idea that I had and I'd like to hear your take on it. So when we talk about schools, all schools, we're really talking about young people becoming adults, becoming themselves, right? Becoming a part of our, of our society. So it's very much about the future. And so I, I sometimes think about things like culture wars as being competing values of what that com that um, future is going to look like. And I wonder if there's a way to separate that from the code of ethics. In other words, can we talk about ethics in schools <coughs> absent of sort of the current sort of hyper-politicized times that we're living in? Mm -hmm. In other words, if we looked at that code of ethics, that the state of New Hampshire has, are, do you think that those statements of ethics are sort of universal and could be universally applicable regardless of a person's political point of view, um, their time and place in the world? Are they, are they really sort of universal ethical standards, if you will? I, I think they can be. I mean, the, you know, you, the interesting thing that, that I see is that people talk about um, freedom. Let's take freedom of speech, for one, it, as a non-discriminatory thing. Um, there are, you look at the DeSantis uh, flyers and so forth. You know, I'm going to rail against that woke culture in school. Uh, you have a GSA club. You celebrate Pride Month. You are indoctrinating students into a certain worldview. And it's like, well, yeah. And you want to indoctrinate them into the opposite view that says that these things should, shouldn't exist or these things shouldn't happen. I think the universal value is we all come to this public school, this public sphere, and when we sit around the table, we have to recognize we're not going to get exactly what we want because there are other people who want things that are polar opposite to us. But it is worth it enough for us to come together in unity. And I think that's what our founding fathers talked about, is that you know it was a government formed on the concept that willingly we are going to come together in unity, understanding that we're not going to get our own way all the time, and that we're going to have to listen to other and go through compromise and go through discussion and so forth. And I think the non-discrimination part of it is key, That that and that that's a unifying principle. The hard thing is, in this present culture, is how do you accept in the people who are saying to you, well, you're preaching a woke ideology. I don't want this book in the library. I don't want this topic mentioned. I don't want you teaching um, you know, history from an African-American or, or a, a, a feminocentrist uh, uh, area or not. How do you accept them into the fold and say, you're welcome but we're going to accept everyone else at the same time. And that's the hard thing to rub. So I do think that's a universal value. 
but the culture war has winners or and losers. Right. It's like a zero sum proposition. Correct. Like we can't just say like, hey, like everybody gets to sit at the table. Everybody right. gets to sit yep. at the table. It's I've, if we allow you at the table, then so and so can't be at it. And that's the problem. Yeah. Everyone gets a seat at the table. And if you look at New Hampshire, there are very, very uh, liberal laws about homeschooling and very uh, mm-hmm. permissive laws about people signing their own children out of anything in a school. Mm-hmm. Even the SAS, the state testing. I don't want my child to take state testing. Yes, we're going to hold you schools with a 95% participation rate, but you as a parent can opt your own child out. You can opt your own child out of anything at the school with very little effort and so forth. But what you can't do is dictate what everyone else is going to do. And that's where, you know, the, historically the educational profession, people like, like you, you know, in social studies have studied and come up and said, well, this is what we're going to teach. Mm-hmm. And it can't be a propaganda lesson. It can't be only a one viewpoint. Hopefully, by the time you get to high school, you are bringing in multiple perspectives, respecting them. And even if, after all that, a student writes something in your class that has a political viewpoint that you don't agree with, you're not going to grade that student down or say that they fail because of the political viewpoint. Right. You're going to help them refine their argument. Mm-hmm. By helping, by having them clash against you or another person, and yeah. say, "Let's and go." And it's on. not that hard to do it. You know, honestly, <laughs> it's really not. So, anyway, thanks. Thank you. All right, next in line here, we have Colin Fitzpatrick. Hello. Um, my question is a little bit of shifting gears. Uh, so it seems like a lot of the things that you um, decide on go through a sort of. Um, Medium, so that and that medium is the teachers. So, mm-hmm. in order for what you, uh, what your philosophy is or your ethics are, um, to be passed on to students, they have to go through the teachers. And um, so, how do you go about making sure that um, teachers and um, and school individual schools are really doing like the right things? And how do you? make sure that things are fair for them. Well, the first thing you start at is is you hire good people. Um, and we have the mission statement. And every person we hire, we walk them through the mission statement. We, we, we talk about what's going on. Um, but really, I give a lot of faith and a lot of trust into the people that we hire. Hire good people. Let them do their jobs. Let them talk to kids. I mean, um, and and the other thing is that sometimes you do have to go in, into discipline. That's why you have a code of conduct. That's why you have a code of ethics. If you have a teacher who is um, doing things that are immoral or illegal, um, then you have to step in and discipline. The difficult thing that I see now is it sometimes takes courage because as conflict comes, as maybe someone comes and says, well, I don't want this taught in the school, and I don't want that taught, and and you know, we, we want to make America great again, and we want to preach uh, an America first, whatever that means, curriculum, that our teachers feel that, uh, that they can do that. Um, sometimes what administrators do to avoid the conflict is to say, well, well, don't teach that, or don't bring that up, or don't study that book. And like, like recently with the book that we had challenged, it went through a pretty extensive review process. And the first thing is you have to read the whole book. 
You have to read the whole book. You have to put it in context. What is this book saying? What is this book, you know, not saying? What what is it? And does it have educational value? Uh, in the case that we were looking at, it was a library book, so there was already student choice. You don't have to read this book. No one's saying you have to read this book. Um, but should it be banned from our library? And uh, you know, a lot of people who even looked at the book said, ooh, that book's a little rough, and it, it's a little tough to, to take. Personally, I found it a little tough to take, some of the images and so forth. But at the same time, it's like, it's a library book. You, you don't have to read it. But having it available in the library is seen as a good thing. There were some people in our community who said, I'm not for favor of banning any book. That information should be free and free-flowing. And so somehow you had to balance all that and come out with, with a... Uh, um, with, with with an action that you took, but I think it takes courage to be an educator these days. And what what I try to do is make sure that our teachers feel that they're supported, that they feel that they're going to be given a fair shake, and that if controversy comes, we're not just going to succumb to the controversy and say, "Well, we're not going to do what you tell us not to do." We're going to look at it. We're going to look at it from an ethical and legal perspective and find out uh, what's going on. But you're right. I mean, I, I don't. I have what's called an influence position. So a lot of time, what that means is I uh, lead through those uh, short little uh, comments that I make and, and and emails that I send out and speeches that I make. I see. Thank you. We got one more person seated at the table with us. That's James Menezes. Uh, James, what would you like to say? Uh, hello. What I, the question I have for you is built off of what you just said. What is the what is the line that should be taught? Like, what what are educators responsible for teaching in terms of like history? Like, should they be teaching from a white perspective or a black perspective, or should that be left up to the students to research on their own? Well, you can't really say it's left up to the students to research on their own because the teacher is the guiding force. The teacher is the person who who runs it. Um, as much as possible, what you try to do is you have the teacher say, let's look at original documentation. Uh, what do you call them? So DBQs? Uh, yes. In some history classes, yeah, we'll do document-based questions or just looking and reading primary sources. In, in primary sources. Yeah. And then educating people about what the culture was like when those primary sources were made. When um, the United States was founded... Um, you know, basically, white men were the only people with rights. Uh, women didn't have didn't have any rights. And then, I think the biggest sin that this country has to atone for is slavery. I mean, the the enslaving of another person, taking away their God given rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, is an incredible stain on our country that we are still uh, making amends for. And so, when you go back and you see some of the documents and you see things that happened, you have to look at them within the historical context. And I think, um, you know, there's a there's an America first, uh, a jingoistic, you know, the United States has never anything wrong. When I grew up, we, were, we did um, the melting pot. Uh, you know, we, I, I grew up in the era when we learned about all the holidays and it was a melting pot and everyone was supposed to come in and give up the culture that they were and become an American. And, uh, you know, whatever that meant. And nowadays, I think we recognize uh, more diversity. And we recognize that people have uh, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different experiences, and that that diversity makes us stronger. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so I think 
you know, where, where's the line? I, I think the line is, is when you come in and you try to s- tell someone, you have to believe what I believe, as opposed to, let me show you some historical documents, let me show you some different perspectives of what this history and what this culture is, and help you to make an educated decision about how you want to live in the world. I mean, personally, I want to live in a world that respects women, that respects uh, minorities, and respects uh, the LGBTQ2, LGBTQT plus community. I want to live in that world because love is love. And the more that we respect people, the more that we allow those people to con- make their contributions to society, the stronger we are. And uh, the line is, is when people come in and say, well, those people either have no value or um, you know they don't need any extra protection because historical racism, historical discrimination is all done and it doesn't happen anymore. And it's like, no, the after effects linger. I mean, even as I get older and I learned about things like redlining and I learned about how Black Wall Street was bombed and about how there was systematic racism and redistricting and gerrymandering still takes place to this day. That's just blatantly discriminatory. And, you know, it's, it's not the fight isn't over. Struggle's real. And the fight isn't over. Mm. I feel like a lot of our discussion this morning has been about the difficulties and challenges of kind of this moment in education, this post-pandemic culture war moment. I wonder as we come upon the end here, if we can shift our focus just slightly to the future. And, um, you know, I think while there are a lot of challenges, I wonder what you see as the, the positive signs you see in the future, Dr. C, and kind of where, where you see the best of education going in the next decades, maybe on the whole, and also SAU 67. Well, the kids are all right. <laughs> you know, I, um, I, when I grew up in my school, we never saw the students with disabilities. They were locked away in the basement. Uh, once in a while, you'd see them, but you know, they'd never got to participate. Um, and now we have inclusive cla- classrooms. And the thing that's interesting to me is when I hire young educators, they've grown up in the inclusive classroom. They, they, they've grown up where students with disabilities are educated right along with their peers. And it's not an issue for them. It's not a problem. It's just we, we do it naturally. And I look at the students now. I don't think the students had any issue with the book that we had. The students had, didn't have any issue with the things that were going on in, in the school. It wasn't student-led that people were coming out. And I think as those students grow up and they take their place in, in society and they, they've grown up in an include more inclusive, more accepting way, um, I think in my own lifetime, the bigger discrimination issue that I've seen is, is for women. Um, my own wife not only has had a job, she's had a career for all of her life. And in some of our conservative circles, she was like told, well, you should stay home. I mean, as a woman, you should stay home and, and take care of your children. And she's done a great job having a full-time career and a full-time job and taking care of our children much better than I could and balanced out that family. And as my children grew up and saw us in that role, because my parents were not like that. My mom did all the housework, took care of everything, and my dad sat on his TV and wa- sat in his chair and watched TV. And hopefully, my kids saw more of a balanced approach—not as balanced as it should have been. My 
I, I know that, and my wife will tell you that. But as that next generation comes up, I think that that's the gain. I walk around your high school, I see acceptance. I do see clicks. I mean, the sports kids hang out, the music kids hang out. But I also see we have the heterogeneous classes. There's a lot of mixing. And I see a lot of kids hang out, and uh, they accept people who are weird and different. Because, you know, we're all weird and different in our own little way. And... Uh, the more that I see that happening, the more hope I have for the future that we're going to build uh, a society that really uh, um, is accepting and inclusive and values the contributions of, of everyone. Mm. And for SAU 67, well, uh, I let, I'm leaving a paint scraper that can scrape the mission statement off the wall at any time and create a new one, but I've been told they won't have to use that for a little while. They're going to keep the same mission statement for a I'm, while. I'm glad for that. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Dr. C, and everyone else around this table. Uh, it was a really interesting conversation, and uh, we, uh, we will miss you next year. Thank you for your well, service you. here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.